Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Not sure if y'all have heard about ASHA's 2020 supervision updates yet, but tonight's guest, Carrie Comer, MSCCC SLP, and the current president of the DC Speech Language Hearing Association, most definitely has. And this petite powerhouse is here today to make this episode fun and functional. 
So I first met Carrie in April at the Council of State Association President's biannual conference. Let me paint you the picture. Miss Carrie was the picture of Poison Grace in a beautiful ballroom in Little Rock, Arkansas, and a hotel that President Ulysses S. Grant, good Lord, I can't say that. Thank goodness I don't teach the babies to talk. <laughs> um, he was rumored to have kept his horse in his guest suite for fear that someone would steal her because apparently the South doesn't let nothing go. <laughs> and I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> and this lovely lady in her amazing suits was sitting next to my enlightened yet smart mouth self, surrounded by equally nerdy and passionate leaders from across the nation. She may have wisdom to match her grace and style, and I, the ever fumbly mumbly church mouse, had coffee and tap and reading classes. <laughs> um, but yet somehow I won her over with Southern charm, or maybe it was the glass of red wine that we poured, I think it was probably Friday night. <laughs> but in either case, she too has served as a clinical supervisor, and she too shared my heartfelt desire to see others pay it forward by serving our next generation of SLPs in this capacity. So, a few emails later, here she is, and my soul is ecstatic. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it yet, but she did do a fantastic blog about clinical supervision, and I think it went out last week or the week before that on speechtherapypd.com's email. If you didn't check it there, also check it out on the, um, the blog on their website because she is as excellent a writer as she is a speaker. So, Carrie, how in the world did you go from Alabama to George Washington University? And um, have you ever heard of Silicaga, Alabama? <laughs> Why, yes, I have heard of Silicaga. Um, so I was... <laughs> No, I was just going to say, that's like the one thing I know in Alabama, aside from the, it's Roll Tide, right? Like I have heard of yeah. Roll Tide, but yes. um, Silicaga is where my stepdaddy's from. And he told me when him and my mama were dating that um, it was the only place in the world where a meteorite was actually fell through someone's ceiling and hit a lady in the leg. And I honest to God thought he was like lying because, <laughs> you know, he's my stepdad. He's supposed to pull my chain, right? And then I went to astronomy class and I read it. In my astronomy class textbook, and all I can think, naive little 19-year-old Michelle was like, how much money did Don pay to have this man put this in a book? And then my mom was like, it doesn't work that way. It actually happened. I was like, oh. okay, so that's my Silicaga, Alabama story. Wow. <laughs> all right, so, but seriously, you're from Alabama and made it to D.C., so how did this happen? <laughs> yep, so I was born and raised in Birmingham and did attend the University of Alabama, so thankfully you know Roll Tide. <laughs> I was going to say, please tell me that's Roll Tide, because if it's not, that is that is. Auburn? I no. don't know. <laughs> nope. Have the correct school. Um, so I did work in Atlanta for a little bit. I ended up moving back to Birmingham for a little bit as well and was just ready for a change. Um, both in Atlanta and Birmingham, I was practicing. I worked in many different settings. I did uh, public school, preschool, private practice, PRN in hospitals. And I loved doing a little bit of everything, but was just ready for something different. So I searched and searched and searched. And I thought, well, what about academia? That sounds like a lot of fun. And yeah. I actually found the George Washington University before the job had posted. Um, 
So about two weeks later, I went back on the website and the job had posted and I thought, okay, this is a sign. <laughs> so I applied, uh, they interviewed me, they offered me the job and I was just extremely ecstatic. I moved to DC and it just, it felt, it just fit like a glove. Like I just, I fell into the area, um, met a lot of wonderful people, was actually a part of my alumni chapter here in the area, um, and then recently just got involved with the DC Speech and Hearing Association. Um, so there's so much to do personally and professionally in this area. And I absolutely love teaching and supervising at the George Washington University. Awesome. Okay, so um, I'm a I'm from Virginia and grew up outside of Fredericksburg. So and I've got um, my kid brother stationed at the Air Force Base there, an uh, uh-huh. Air Guard, and my. Um, she doesn't know it yet, but my future sister-in-law lives in D.C. <laughs> and, um, I mean, Ethan, if you're listening, put a ring on it, dude. Put a ring on it. We all love her. Um, and uh, she's a lobbyist for the National Down Syndrome Society right there wow. in D.C. And okay. is amazing. So whenever we get a chance, we go up there. I highly recommend if you haven't gone to it yet, they have a craft and axe. It's axe-throwing place right outside of D.C. Yeah. I don't, have you been? <laughs> no, I've heard of it. Okay, go. It's wonderful. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, ow, I just whacked my knee. All right. So, in your role, you're teaching, but you're also in charge of setting up practicums. Is that correct? Yep. So, I do community outreach, um, which means I get to network with SLPs all over DC and also around the US. Um, So, our students do externships locally, and they also have the opportunity to do away externships. So, I'm always looking for possibilities around the country and even outside of the U.S. because students can complete an externship outside of the U.S. if they are supervised by an ASHA certified SLP. Okay, so folks listening, if you are so inclined at the end of this podcast, if Carrie and I have convinced you to become a clinical supervisor to one of, to any fabulous student, but especially to her fabulous students, how can they reach you? (laughs) Yes. Feel free to take one. Um, But my email address, I'm sure you'll share it at the end. Do you want me to share it? Yes. Go ahead and do it because somebody somewhere is like, oh, she sounds fun and DC is beautiful. Yes. (laughs) So they can email directly, email me directly at Comer K C O M as in mom E R K at G W U dot E D U. Beautiful. Okay, thank you. All right, so then let's dive into it because I know I, for me personally, I was afraid to become a clinical supervisor because I had not so great experiences as a student, which Mm -hmm. um, can really turn folks off. And they're also afraid that there's a bunch of paperwork and like those kind of things. But um, can, can you explain the most common fears and misconceptions regarding Mm -hmm. clinical supervision? Yeah. So I've heard several different reasons over the years. There's a few that kind of stick out as maybe the most common, The first, hands down, being the fear that it will take up a lot of time. Um, So SLPs who work in settings where productivity is very important and maybe they have to hit a certain quota, they might be worried that their productivity could decrease, the number of billable hours could decrease, and that could eventually um, affect them in the workplace with their supervisor. 
Sometimes SLPs are also concerned that students may not be as prepared or there's a very high learning curve for the student and they're worried that the student might need a lot of hand-holding in the beginning, um, that the student might take longer to implement therapy sessions, to complete diagnostics, to complete paperwork. Um, and SLPs, too, are also worried about the requirements around meeting with students and giving them feedback. And a lot of times I find that they're worried that they'll have to come in earlier in the day or work through their lunch hour or even stay later to meet those requirements. Um, another fear that I've heard um, is SLPs are worried that they'll need a certain or that they don't have enough knowledge or they don't have the skill set to take on a student. Maybe they're concerned that they feel they're not as well rounded. So maybe they're more comfortable with pediatric articulation and pediatric language, but they want to delve into pediatric feeding and they don't feel like they have those skills yet. Or they also might be concerned that they don't have the number of years um, that's required. And actually, ASHA only requires, um, well, beginning in January of 2020, ASHA will require nine months of clinical practice experience post-certification. So that means you have your nine-month clinical fellow year. And then after that, you have another nine months. So for those, basically those working in the schools, they work a full another school year and then they can serve in the role as a clinical supervisor. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Um, so a couple of thoughts. When, um, when somebody first approached me, it was me getting asked that made the difference. And like me actually considering being a clinical supervisor, like there is no way I would have done it. If somebody hadn't specifically said, hey, you, this would be fun. And then I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and you hit a lot of those misconceptions right on. But one that I had was I work in home health. I was afraid, does the student have HIPAA training? Like, will they know that like, you know, we're going to run into the coffee shop. You can't use the kid's name while we're in the coffee shop grabbing a cup of coffee. Would they be able to even legally ride in my car? Because you know, I didn't want them following me in a car all day long in their car because gas is expensive and college students are broke. <laughs> so like those factors, but even like the logistical day-to-day -day fears, do you get those kind of concerns? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The things that you mentioned as well. And you can certainly have those questions answered by the university and it will probably vary program to program. Um, with HIPAA specifically, students are trained because a lot of programs do still have clinics on campus. So we train the students in HIPAA to protect ourselves as well and protect our own clients. So they do get that training. Um, we also work with SLPs to get the students acclimated into the externship. And we let them know that they can set the requirements that they want the students to meet. Everything is up to them once you meet the ASHA requirements. And I can review what those will be again starting in January 2020. 
Yes. Okay. Do the review because I'm sure some people aren't aware of the changes that are coming and they're going to be here in like two or three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So beginning January of 2020, ASHA is going to require the nine months of experience after you obtain your C's before you began supervising a student. So, you know, not as much experience as maybe SLPs are thinking, but if you think about it, you've got a ton of experience from your undergrad, from your bachelor's, from your fellowship, and then from the nine months of practicing on your own as well. So that's a lot of knowledge and skill set underneath your belt. The other big change is that ASHA will require two hours or two CEUs of on the topic of supervision. And that's just one and done. You don't have to do it each certification cycle, but you do have to complete two hours of CEUs in the topic of supervision before you can continue supervising students. So even if you've worked with students up until now, you will have to complete that and show the program that you've done it. Somebody asked me last week, and because I don't do this, I didn't know the answer to it. So I directed them back to the supervision page on the ASHA website. They said that if you're going to be an SLPA supervisor, it, it was like 10 hours instead of two. Okay. Is that different? Have you heard that? Because I haven't heard that and was like, I, I mean, I don't have an SLPA that I supervise. It's me, myself, mm -hmm. and I and the um, lovely lady that gets to ride shotgun and endure whatever mystery smell is in my car that week, courtesy <laughs> of my children. And like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have not heard of that. I would have to double check, but, um, okay. keep in mind that SLPAs aren't in every state right now. That's, um, that's why I was, I was like, I don't, yeah. honey, I was like, I, I don't, I told her, I was like, honey, I don't think that's an, Asha thing that might be a yeah. South Carolina thing yeah. because you know we're a little yeah. different we're a little it is the Palmetto State we are unique <laughs> to say the least but um you know I was like I yeah okay all right that's now Asha, Asha is setting up an SLPA certification mm -hmm. that will roll out I think later in 2020 but we haven't yes. gotten there yet so that will right. we'll cross that bridge maybe in another episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So what, what additional requirements Two and done? And then is there anything else? Um, those are really the big ones. Um, and again, just to stress the two hours and done. So not to be confused with the other topics like ethics, that's actually required each certification cycle. So that's basically folks that you're listening when she's saying certification cycle, she means every um, three years or 30 hours. So you mm -hmm. will be required to um, complete that ethics CEU. I think it's, what is it? One hours in ethics? One hour. One hour, yes. yeah, one hour in ethics every um, 30 hours or every three years, which I thought was fantastic. I was kind of surprised yes. they didn't actually put three hours on that, but yeah. um, I'm glad that at least they got the one in there. Yeah, that okay. could change. And I'm glad that they're doing this too, because we're going to start to get more and more information on these topics as people mm -hmm. try to help SLPs meet these requirements. Um, did you, I think it was last spring, so about a year and a half ago, they had an article in the ASHA leader on clinical supervision, and they talked mm -hmm. about the bullying that the students were mm -hmm. undergoing the yes. um, the fears that the students had. Uh, did you read that by any chance? 
I did. Yes. Do you, do you see that on your end with the students? Do the students have fears? Um, the students are great. You know, they're very professional and they're very mature. Of course, sometimes things come up. I would say the students' biggest fears, though, is about themselves. Um, they also have the same fear that they don't have the knowledge or the skill set yet, that they need more time, that it's going to take them a little bit longer to get the hang of something. And they're also afraid that they're going to somehow let the supervisor down or let the client down. But this really drives them to work even harder and to excel in the areas that they're at. Students really just want to please the supervisor and they want to learn as much as possible. Sometimes we do have personality differences more so than, um, you know, actually bullying or a student feeling um, just uncomfortable in a, in a position. It really is just more of a personality difference. And so we encourage our supervisors before the student starts to sit down and talk about not only all of the expectations, but the differences in personality, even things like, you know, how you give feedback, how often you're going to give feedback. Is it going to be live or is it going to be over email or is it going to be after the session? And letting the student know, you know, I'm, I'm here to support you. I'm only giving you constructive feedback and it's really here to help you grow. Um, and students are great about taking that on and they want feedback. They want as much as possible. Um, but even something as simple as stating to the student, okay, I'm giving you feedback now. <laughs> is, <laughs> and then they go deer in headlights. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes, yeah, but students really need that too. Otherwise, it just feels like a conversation and the student might feel like at the end of the day, they haven't gotten a lot of the feedback. Um, mm -hmm. But again, just talking about different types of personality and what your expectations are goes a really long way in helping the student feel settled and, and build that rapport with you. Awesome. That, um, I have, I remembered being a student and thinking my clinical supervisor thinks I know everything. And at this stage of the game, I'm a functional idiot and I don't know my, you know what, from my elbow. And now <laughs> I am a 36 year old female. And now I'm like, oh God, they think I know everything and I'm a functional idiot. <laughs> I know I hear, I hear a dear friend saying less self-deprecating humor, but like, I still feel very much like the socially awkward 15 year old Michelle Wood that I was a lifetime ago. So like, um, that's, that does put pressure on the clinical supervisor, but mm -hmm. my takeaway, and I, I've had a lot, um, I've had the pleasure of supervising a student every semester for the last several years, and it has brought joy into my heart and into our homes. And um, it's been amazing to see that if I, t if I take the kid as like a blank page, I say kid because I'm feeling old because there, there's a larger age gap between me and graduate <laughs> students now. But if I take the graduate student and assume that they're a blank canvas that we get to build up, Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool to see uh, with that assumption, um, I feel like I have set the student for more for success because it takes the pressure off, that expectation off, and really truthfully, that 
that tip of meeting with them beforehand, I always meet, there's a shout out, the gourmet shop. If you guys are ever in Columbia, South Carolina, go to the gourmet shop with the um, red and white awning and get a jar of their rhubarb jam. It will basically go on everything, including vanilla ice cream. <laughs> but like, I always meet them there. And that does, you know, they see you as like a real person. Um, mm-hmm. And that. I, I, that has been wonderful. Okay. All right. So we talked about fears and then we squirreled, but like passionate squirrels. So, um, how do we, um, dispel the fears and misconception and encourage folks to be a clinical supervisor? And along that line, what resources would you recommend that folks, um, pursue to help build themselves up to be a clinical supervisor? Right. Um, so I can take it area by area if that's... Yeah, that was a really long question. I'm so sorry. Let's go with the first thing I said. Yeah, yeah. And I do have a few more extra fears too, but maybe... Oh, wait, wait, no. Go through the fears first. I'm sorry. Okay. I cut you no, off. Okay. Behave, no Michelle. Okay. Um, so another common misconception I also hear is an SLP saying that they are worried they won't have enough hours for the student to obtain. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they only just do therapeutic hours and the student won't have the option to do diagnostic hours, or maybe they feel like their caseload isn't diverse enough. Maybe they only do pediatric articulation and language and not much else, and they feel like it wouldn't be a well-rounded experience for the clinician. And then lastly, the other big area I hear, which you kind of touched on, is, is the fear of how the client and caregiver will handle it. You know, are the students um, knowledgeable about HIPAA? Will they respect the client's confidentiality? How will clients greet a new person, especially if they're private pay clients? Will they feel like they're still getting the same level of service for what they're paying for? Um, maybe they spent a long time gaining the trust of that client and that caregiver, and they're not sure how they would warm up to a new person, especially a younger person. And then, of course, we all have those clients and caregivers who, in general, are just slow to warm up or might have a a lot of behavior issues, and the clinician's just not sure how a student can cope with that. Um, But there's actually a lot of positives. I was about to say, we just painted this whole thing as like, it's a train wreck, jump on the train, hold on for dear life, you're going to make it. Yeah, yeah. no, actually, these are just like we said, misconceptions. So I'll walk you through um, each of them. So in the misconception regarding time. So students are really, really, really eager to jump right in and learn everything they possibly can about the setting, about what it's like to work as an SLP full time. And this is what they've trained for. And they cannot wait to get started. Um, So in the beginning, it might be a little bit more handholding. It might be a little bit more time. But most sites have students work up to seeing 100% of the caseload on their own, including planning and documentation. Um, so, of course, the documentation needs to be reviewed and signed by a licensed SLP. Wait, say that again. The so documentation any- has to be reviewed and signed. All right, mm-hmm. hold on. With that, I have a very critical question. Does okay. that mean in medical documentation, does the, does the student need their own user ID and password to log in and access everything? Or can they log in under the supervisor's? That's a great question. And I think it really varies by site. Um, okay. A lot of sites have their own requirements where the, the student may have their own login. And then I think we definitely have sites where the student uh, shares the supervisor login. 
Okay, because I I always make sure because I'm so worried about HIPAA. I mm-hmm. always make sure that I pay extra every month. Like mm-hmm. it's it's nominal, it's ten bucks. But for me to take a student, I do pay ten dollars extra every month for okay. um, the student to have their own unique um, username and login to the um, mm-hmm. billing system that I mm-hmm. use. Um, okay. who shall not be named, but I mean, like the <laughs> billing system that I use. And that that's just crux for me because I want them to be able to access their notes, you know, and put stuff in and I want it clearly delineated. And the way my program works up, um, they can sign off and then I can sign off. Okay, sorry. Perfect. Just clarification for technical yep. purposes. Okay, continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, great question. But um, of course, any legal document does have to have a signature by a licensed SLP. So just make sure you have time to review that. And then the ASHA requirement for supervision is that 25% of the session has to be directly observed. Anything else inside of those requirements, it's up to the site and it's up to the SLP if they want to do more. But those are the minimum set forth by ASHA. So 25% of each session has to be directly observed or 25% of all of their sessions? So it can be either or. So some sites might um, do it where the first few days the student is observed all the time. And then maybe the rest of the week they just kind of check in. We do want an SLP to at least be on site if the student is not being directly observed. But ASHA just states that a minimum of 25% um, of the sessions need to be directly observed. See, this is very interesting because I know that that's, um, I know that's a huge fear for some of my friends that have mm-hmm. worked in like a hospital or in a sniff. They're like, yeah. I would love to do this, especially when they're looking at like, Hey, we've got a couple openings coming up and we need new staff. However, you know, that's, they want to make sure that they train the staff and they have that's why a lot of people hint, hint, a lot of people really like to take students because you can train the person in the ways of the world that your facility perceives it. And mm-hmm. that's, um, but that's been an issue. So the 25% and it can be divvied up over the time. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yep. Um, also to keep in mind that students are very well prepared in their program. So they're rotating through classes. A lot of programs still have on-campus clinics. So they're obtaining um, experience right then and there that they can bring with them. Here at GW, our students rotate through eight subspecialty clinics. So they have had an pretty much experience in each of ASHA's big nine before they go off campus. So what that's eight. What's the one that's missing? <laughs> that's a good question. So I think I just have to list them <laughs> instead of thinking of what's missing. <laughs> Sorry. So we, we have our neurogenics track where um, we work with clients who have had strokes or head injury um, or other neurological disorders. We have a pediatric language disorders track. We have a social communication disorders track. I personally supervise the accent modification track here. What? Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) And being in DC, you know, there's a big need for it. So it's fascinating to meet people from all over the world who need these services. Um, We also have a hearing healthcare track. We have a voice track. So we work with clients who are transgender and we also work with clients with traditional voice disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a fluency track and we have a literacy track and we have a speech and motor speech disorders track. Awesome. I believe that's all of them. Was that eight? <laughs> yeah. You're dismissing dysphagia. Okay. Oh, my stars. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I might know, girl. No, I'm just kidding. But like, that's too far away, and DC is really loud, and it's overwhelming to the senses. But like, that's one thing. Okay, so I asked that because I have noticed a lot of university clinics don't have um, on-site dysphagia. Um, mm-hmm. So for those of you that are listening, if yeah. the university clinic does not have on-site dysphagia cl- experience. You know, I do do a little bit more, not hand-holding, but support for those mm-hmm. students with my peds dysphagia classes. But think about it this way. If they don't get it at their university, how are they going to get that experience and then go out and treat the tiny humans with pediatric oropharyngeal esophageal dysphagia and or feeding aversions if they don't have yes. you? So exactly. be there, be the source of change. <laughs> okay. Yes. Thank you for saying that. That that really is our biggest struggle. And a lot of programs struggle with that particular area because it is harder in a university clinic to be set up for that, where you might need a little bit more medical equipment. Um, but exactly, how will our students get that knowledge that they so desperately need before they graduate? I mean, we've all been in that same boat where we need experience in one topic. And, you know, it's like, how do we find find this <laughs> um, other than to teach yourself. But yes, take a student, teach them everything they need to know. And you are definitely helping our profession. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> because you know what? I, we're saving more babies than we did yeah. like 15 years ago. I mean, heavens to Betsy's, we're saving infants that we didn't save five years ago. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, and lastly, too, with in the area of time, um, you know, tell your students when you interview them what you want them to be familiar with and what you want them to be efficient in. Students love to practice on themselves. They practice on each other here in the clinic. They practice on their roommates. So giving them something. <laughs> they practice on my kids. I definitely. My goose, you, if, he, if he sticks his tongue out, you can see his epiglottis. And oh, it's wow. like, the, yeah. And so he always, whenever he meets one of mommy's new interns, he goes, you want to see my epiglottis? <laughs> but he has a hyperactive gag reflex. So oh, wow. if the intern sticks her head in a little too close, he's like, Ugh. and I'm like, please don't throw up on her. Please don't throw up on her. And, <laughs> and Bear has an asymmetrical um, fascial pillar from um, scar tissue from where they took out uh, his tonsils. They did an intercapsulary tonsillectomy. And like, it's really cool to see the asymmetry in his fascial pillars because it looks like there's some like cranial nerve damage, but like, I know he's unique, but it's scar tissue and um, they will practice on your children and the kids mm-hmm. will think it's great. So, yep. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So give the students something to review ahead of time. They love to read and research more. So that will save you a little bit of time too in the long run. And then as far as documentation goes here at GW, we only require one additional thing and that's a completed midterm and final report. And ours is all, all online and it's just a checklist. And it's because we have to document the student's performance of how they do off campus, but it takes about 15 minutes. And so other than that, outside of the ASHA requirements, like I said, that's all that we require. Everything else is up to the site and up to the SLP. Yep. So, yep. So take a student. (laughs) Take a student. (laughs) Take a student. Okay. All right. So if we haven't alleviated your fears yet, um, then, and you still want more information and resources, the part two of the question that like I chucked at you at the beginning of the part one mm-hmm. question, um, what resources do you recommend to help folks grow? 
Yep. So as I said earlier, now that this is an upcoming requirement for ASHA for the two hours of CEUs and supervision, you're going to find that there's more and more information out there over time. Um, ASHA did have a module. I don't know if it's still available, um, but it was available for a short time. Also, programs might have created their own. Um, here at GW, we don't have our own yet, but that's because we can give you access to the organization. It's called Capson. Um, oh, yes. That was the South Carolina lady. It was um, created oh, okay. by a, oh my goodness, I can't remember what part of the state she lives in, but um, um, not, um, yeah, but Capson, the online billing system. Um, oh my gosh, I just brain farted. The system that we log into to sign off on clinical hours, that was a South Carolina in. woman. Um, Maybe Tiffin or uh, it will come Calypso? to me. Uh, Calypso, yes, okay. there it is. You said Capsid, and I thought Calypso is cool. <laughs> I'm a clinical supervisor, and know me. <laughs> Continue. Ooh. I'll be quiet though. Yeah, no. Um, so we have access through Capsid, which is the Council of Academic Programs in Communication Sciences and Disorders, and so we have access to two or three free modules on there that we can give supervisors for supervising a student, um, so they can meet their requirements that way. And again, it's all free. Um, because you are willing to take on a student. Um, also, working with other SLPs who have supervised in the past are great resources. They might have um, some things already set up or just an idea of how they give feedback, some processes that work for them. And you can also share students. So we haven't talked about this yet, but a student doesn't have to work directly with just one SLP at a site. You can certainly share a student. Our students work with two or three SLPs sometimes at any given site. And so that's just another great resource. So you have people to brainstorm, talk about the student's performance, giving feedback, um, researching any questions that you have. And of course, always, always, always depend on the university program in which the student is enrolled. They have a lot of information. They are happy to problem solve with you, come out and do a site visit if needed, um, share resources that they might have, share experiences that they have, things that work, things that don't. Um, so always depend on that university program for more. Okay, but go back to the part we talk about the sharing. Yep. Um, so again, a student can work with more than one SLP at a time. So this is helpful if the SLP feels like they don't have enough hours for the student to get, or maybe they only specialize in a certain area, or they only do the treatment side of things. Maybe there's an SLP in the practice or the setting who does diagnostics or specializes in the feeding part, um, or gets to go visit the NICU if the student's in a hospital. So if they want the student to have a, an, another well rounded experience, oftentimes they'll share the student that way. Or if the SLP is worried about workload, maybe they take a student, you know, one or two days a week, and then another supervisor takes them one or two days a week. So the student's able to get the full-time experience. Okay. So I just, I'm kind of curious because I started as a clinical fellow mentor and they got placed on emergency rest, bed rest with the little one. It would... If that happened to a student, would, are most universities, because I mean, she was in our clinical fellow, but like, I'm just thinking there are people that potentially want to be clinical supervisors and that student sharing option might be helpful if they, you know, are anticipating pregnancy or what if they're mm -hmm. military and then their, or their spouse is military and their spouse gets deployed or transferred mm -hmm. and they have to move. Um, are most universities comfortable with doing that? Yes. Or, okay. Okay. 
Yeah, and it comes up a lot. I, we tell our students once they're placed at a site, there's always one or two that there's a last minute change for those exact reasons. There's um, an unexpected move or um, someone gets pregnant <laughs> um, and they have to go on bed rest or, you know, they fall down and break an ankle. Something always happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just like, my aunt fell off her back porch one time and she go, she just hit ice and she like flipped and like shattered her ankle and she's like, I just laid there. I knew the dogs or my husband would come looking for me eventually. And like <laughs> accent modification at its best. There it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Um, I, yeah. We are, we're very used to last minute changes. Of course, if they're avoidable, that's always helpful for us, but we do teach the students about the importance of flexibility and how to work with that. <laughs> um, one resource that I love to help me grow as a clinical supervisor is your role. Mm -hmm. um, my Your counterpart down here at USC is Juliana, and she is wonderful. And I have reached out to her for guidance and advice, um, especially when I, was, um, <laughs> when I was first taking students on. Um, I had a, a student one time and I was trying to describe the surface of a, of a bottle nipple and why it was so great for like, you know, patients that were like exclusively breastfeeding and then mom goes back to work and takes the boobs with her and then they have to transition to a bottle and like, ah, you know, all H double high sticks breaks loose. And so I took the student hand and I was like, it feels just like this. And then I like put her hand on my boob, Sarah, I love you. <laughs> She's getting married in like a couple months. Um, cause I had just like two or three weeks earlier stopped breastfeeding. And so I still had, um, the milk, like, um, I still had the lumps in my breast tissue from it. And like, you know, I was like, it feels just like this. And the sweet, sweet <laughs> student, um, she's got, um, she, she blushed and she goes, yes, ma'am, Miss Michelle. Yes, ma'am. I called Juliana and she goes, and honey, that's why we send them to you for the full experience. But um, I was like, it's great. Made your, uh, my intern feel my boobs today. All right. So folks listening, do not make your interns feel your boobs. But at the same time, um, you know, that was an interesting troubleshoot that we had to um, power through, but uh, it was, is fun and fantastic. But like, if I have one that I don't know, I mean, I've had students that I've been worried about their anxiety levels, or mm -hmm. I've been worried that they were in an unsafe um, relationship. Um, mm -hmm. Because especially traveling home health, it becomes a very intimate, you know, practicum. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, I'm worried about, um, you know, something that she shared concerns for domestic abuse because I'm a domestic abuse survivor from my ex-husband. And I have always found I can share concerns with her or volley ideas back and forth. Okay. Well, this student learns best this way. So phrase it this way. And I mean, your role in setting up the practicums, y'all, these folks know their students. Mm -hmm. And so always take time when you're, um, if you're considering being a clinical supervisor, reach out to this person and say, okay, so I would like to be a supervisor, but this is my personal style. This is, you know, I would anticipate I would work well with this kind of personality. Or, and that helps. I, I am assuming it would help you in your choice of where you send a student. 
Yeah. So I can talk a little bit about how we match students yes, right now. Please, because um, that's, that, that's so interesting to me. It sounds like mm-hmm. a very difficult puzzle. Also, Andrea <laughs> Weaver, if you're listening, I am sorry for all the, the um, pain I put you through as um, one of your students. <laughs> um, so it's actually really common for SLPs to say, yes, I can take a student, but I can only take your best student, um, which, you know, gets a little tiring to hear, <laughs> to be honest. But yeah. I love how you just said to be open to letting the student match you because we actually look at several things. So one, of course, is personality. We do know the students, whether the students know it or not. We know a lot more about them than they realize. We watch them interact with the cohort. We watch them interact with clients. We watch them interact with us. And so we have an idea of their professionalism. Uh, we have an idea of their knowledge base. We know the, the classes that they've already had. We know what their interest level is, um, their work ethic, whether they can handle a fast-paced environment or maybe they need a different setting that gives them a little bit more time in between patients. We also look at the location of the site and the student and what your requirements are. So just like you said, if there's a specific personality or work ethic, or ability to multitask and work at a fast pace, we certainly keep that in mind. And an elaborating on location, don't worry if you're not near a university program. Uh, we have students who drive near and far, sometimes an hour and a half, two hours just to get to class. So by the time that they go on their externship, if you're two hours away from us, then the student would love to go there because it's just a five minute drive. <laughs> yeah. Um, And again, we do have students who often do what we call an away externship. So they carve out a semester with nothing on campus so they can go anywhere in the U.S. or, again, anywhere in the world if they're supervised by a licensed SLP. So we do look at the big picture of the student and the big picture of the site before we place them. I had one one friend told me about the time that there was a practicum site in Hawaii and the volcano (laughs) erupted. And like, oh. they had to get really creative. So anybody out there in Hawaii, if you want to be a clinical supervisor, I know there's some folks that are looking. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So we've got about 20 minutes left and we okay. have um, definitely one more question. And then, um, uh, you know, I just have random questions of awesomeness, but um, what are the three Top three most rewarding components of being a clinical supervisor. All right. So I could hear your page turn. I think that's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) You were prepared, woman. (laughs) Yes. Um, So it's hard to narrow down. And I'm a person that doesn't really like to list favorites or think about favorites. But I would say the top three, the first would certainly be networking. Um, So you're meeting students with all different types of backgrounds and interests, especially if you take a student every semester, which Mm -hmm. most LSLPs do. They become hooked after that first one. So your professional network is really growing. And then you also have the network at the university. Um, And you can usually access uh, resources on campus, too, through these networking opportunities. So sometimes universities can give you access to their on-campus library. Um, Or if you're interested in a research project, there's someone that they can match you with at the university level that can cover IRB and the research planning and everything. Um, Also... 
A lot of the externships lead to jobs for the students. So this is a great way to get to know the student and the personality and the work ethic, and then eventually take them on as a CF or maybe later on once they get their certification. Um, also, some SLPs do are required to mentor someone, and that includes graduate students. And so using this also leverages uh, them at their job for the next level of promotion. I would say the biggest thing for me is that your skill set grows. So I remember when I yeah. first started at GW, everything was so intuitive. I had been practicing for about six or seven years on my own. And I was just to the point where everything was automatic. Um, the recommendations that I made, the homework that I gave, the techniques that I used, and the feedback that I gave the family. But when you're working with a student, you actually have to learn to verbalize what Why? just became automatic. Yeah, you yeah. have to rationalize. And so that not only increases your skill set, but it also helps you interact with clients and caregivers because you're better able to verbally reason why you're recommending something or the research behind it. And also with that being said, students come with their own ideas. They come with um, new ideas for you if you feel like you're kind of in a rut and doing the same thing. And they also have access to professors and textbooks and research articles that they love to share and talk about as well. And <laughs> I'm just thinking about one time that backfired for somebody, but continue. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, um, and I think lastly, too, like we talked about in the very beginning, you're giving back to the profession. We've all been students. We all needed someone to supervise us because we need three, our students need 375 clock hours before they graduate. And they need that variety of experience because they ultimately one day are going to go out and they're practicing on their own by the themselves and they need this skill set. And, you know, we can only teach them so much here on campus, but you're even talking about the online billing system and the documentation that you use. There's so many out there that we can't teach the student every single one. Or, you know, in schools, IEPs are written different in every maybe county and state. So we can't teach them every single thing that they need to know. So universities really need you and they need your experience and your skill set to help prepare the next level or the next generation of professionals. Okay, when she says the next generation of professionals, to put it a little bit closer to home, those students are going to be treating your parents, mm -hmm. your grandchildren, your children, and God forbid, you. Mm -hmm. So... If you think about that and everybody just went, oh, snap, because <laughs> like, um, but yeah, but that's, that's big for me. I've done this enough that um, long enough that I have seen so many go across the state here in South Carolina. And there's a couple in Ohio and Pennsylvania that I'm thinking about and um, one or two over in um, Georgia. And it's very cool for me to think that when I have a family that moves, especially with the rotation of the crop seasons here in South Carolina, I mean, just that simple, hey, you're going to go upstate to, you know, and pick this. Okay, well, then your little one can be seen by this patient. Or, um, you know, we've got some military families um, because we've got a base here in town. Okay, well, I know a, a person at Fort Jackson. I know a person like who actually practices on Fort Jackson. I know a person mm -hmm. that goes to Fayetteville. So like we can cover some of the military bases and, and you'll know that you have trust in that person's skill set where you're sending them. 
-hmm. And that brings me joy and peace at mind at night because, you know, it's just, it's, and it's like giving birth without the labor pains and the stretch marks. Like, <laughs> like having an intern yeah. is the equivalent of giving birth without all the unpleasantries and stitches. Right. There's lots of stitches. <laughs> <at least for me. laughs> okay. So, um, super rewarding. Do you, um, do you have a favorite memory as a clinical supervisor? Can I be nosy or do you have a favorite memory from when you were a student that kind of keeps you going? It's hard to narrow it down to just one. Of course, I still remember the supervisors that I had and just the excitement of working in a new setting. I was able to do, I think, five different externships. So it will be different with each program. Here at yeah. GW, students do two off campus. Um, some programs they do every semester off campus. So I was able to rotate through five. Um, and I loved each one. And I love, I think my favorite thing is also just seeing the students' enthusiasm. Um, as they just come in and it's a new place, it's a new surrounding and they're there to just absorb it all. And I remember having that feeling too as a graduate student and just thinking every semester, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then I would go to a different setting and I'm like, this is what I want to do. Um, <laughs> I just love it all and I just want to do it all. And so that's really fun to see. The students keep you young, they keep you fresh, um, and they keep you excited about our profession. And really just watching them grow. Like you said, it really is like having a child. They first come in, and I see them from orientation on, and sometimes as an undergrad on, and they just come in, and and they are like <laughs> small children, and you just kind of <laughs> guide them, and you see them grow, and eventually they spread their wings, and then there comes a point where they just don't need you anymore, and sometimes I am kind of taken aback. Like if a student doesn't have questions, I'm like, but but what, like, are you sure you don't need me? Are you sure you don't have more questions? And, you know, the student's just like, no, no, I'm good. I get it all. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay. yeah, that, that's amazing. All right. So then the next, all right. So, all right. So my, my favorite is the first. When mm -hmm. they finally get the opportunity to, and the kid eats that first bite, they have mm -hmm. their first sip. They, mm -hmm. um, or they, like, I have, I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of kiddos that, um, are working on just accessing a cause and effect toy, like, you know, prepping them for AAC, but we, you know, mm -hmm. we're lots of cortical vision impairments. And I have one little one that, um, one toy, she would, she would self stem in the corner and engage with nothing. And I borrowed this bead toy. It was a, it was, I don't know, like a foot by, I, I'm bad with measurements. It was a rectangle, that had a, a plexiglass mirror with these uh, metallic beads that hung down over it like a bead chain. It was really heavy. And she would simply hear that toy and roll across the room and reach for that toy. And mm -hmm. that was how we knew she was engaging in the world. Nothing mm -hmm. else would she engage with. And the student that was with me when we first did that, I mean, and it was, there, it was a very low socioeconomic status. There was you know, safety concerns, I mean, like all the, all the negativity, but that, that first mm -hmm. for that student, I mean, heavens to Betsy's that first for me and that mom, like that will, that one will go down as one of my favorites. Cause mm -hmm. she was, she got in the car and she goes, she's like a real kid. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. well, yes, yeah. <laughs> but when you're not used to seeing children that have such medical needs and so many complexities, um, that was, yeah, that, that one keeps me back. Mm -hmm. 
That's cool. Yes. So be a clinical supervisor. Change the world. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So now I'm hoping that by dispelling the fears and rattling off the fears and the misconceptions and then addressing them and then talking about the resources and then telling people the rewards, um, they, um, the free CEUs through Capsid are kind of cool. Um, and a lot of them are also on clinical supervision. So, um, like the ins and outs of how to do it. And then I have seen some come through that were like subject matter specific, um, mm -hmm. lots of adult ones. I've seen a lot of adult ones. That's kind of cool. Um, and so, I mean, there are all of, I'm not discrediting all the, the freebies, but you really end up falling more in love with helping to shape than you do getting reward. Also folks, we don't get paid for this just to clear that up. You don't get paid by the university to be a clinical supervisor. Um, some companies may give you a bonus or it might make you eligible for a pay grade um, as like a lead SLP, but like colleges and universities don't take you, don't pay you to take their students. We, that, I mean, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Um, some are able to give honorariums though. So at GW, we're able to give a small win about a hundred dollars per student supervised. So if you share, you have to divide that amongst you, but, um, some programs do provide that just to help offset, um, anything or to help the supervisor, you know, pay for CEUs on a different topic or buy new materials. It is small, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's something. And then, um, some programs may not be able to do that, but maybe there's other incentives. Yeah, um, our the university here in town hosts an annual CEU event, which okay. I think is lovely. And they yeah. get like a featured speaker in the state to come in. Mm -hmm. um, normally, it's another supervisor, and we all just kind of pay it forward. But um, but yes, but they don't pay you. But you still <laughs> need to do this. Um, so I think we've hit all of our goals for today, and I do need to be respective of our time because I know somebody somewhere will have at least one question on this, and so I have to leave a few minutes for the question. But one last time, if anyone has questions specifically for you, maybe they're like George Washington University sounds amazing, um, and they want to reach out to you. Uh, how do they reach you? Or if they want, I mean, you you lecture on this, correct? So. If somebody listening is also a president of their state association and was like, hmm, Carrie's amazing. We should have her come out and talk at our state conference. Hint, hint, hint. She's really cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, one more time. How do they reach you? Yeah, I would um, love to hear back from people or to speak um, more at conferences on this topic because it is mm -hmm. such a special one. The best way is email. Um, I'm a traveler as well, and I'm always on the move. But you can email me at any time at Comer K. That's C-O-M as in mom, E-R-K at G-W-U dot E-D-U. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you much. for doing this. I'm so grateful you plopped down next to me or I plopped <laughs> down next to you. I don't really remember which way it went because that was that was a really long time ago, but like, <laughs> I'm so glad that we, I met you. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, this is amazing. And I'm happy to talk more if you want to do um, like a what's next or next steps. Just let yes. me know. Yes. Oh, yes, please. All right. Let's put this on the docket for like February, March timeframe because like, okay. yes. Awesome. Okay. okay. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, then let me, um, everybody's like, yes, I want more, please. Um, all right. Let me um, switch this over to questions. Hold on one second. Okay. This 
This is a PSA, public service announcement, that I hope you'll actually listen to because I know how emotionally exhausted I can be at the end of the day. I go home. I want to put my feet up. That's not happening because I have my own tiny humans running around. But sometimes I need to vent and I need to vent, but also find a resolution in my vent when I get frustrated. Because let's be honest, working in pediatric feeding can be difficult. It can be isolating. You feel like you're alone on that little island adrift. I mean, I know technically islands don't drift, but that's what it can feel like. And sometimes you need a sounding board to gain perspective, context, compassion, and encouragement. Feedingmatters.org is available via phone or email to offer support for families and providers that are in need. So reach Feeding Matters today at 1-800-233-4658 or programs at feedingmatters.org. Keep your chin up, take a big deep breath, and if appropriate, put your big girl britches on or your big boy pantaloons. I don't know. Do they wear pantaloons? (laughs) But Feeding Matters has you covered. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode. As well as the